Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk about a fascinating friendship and then be joined by Nancy Piercy, the author of the new book, Love Thy Body. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Ian, I, I am thrilled that it's Friday. It's beautiful out, uh, but I, I have great regret about yesterday's show. I never asked you for the special holidays from yesterday. Like my favorite part of the show, we never did it. Mm, yeah, uh, and Sorry, so man. May, maybe we'll double up today. <laughs> uh, all the angry voicemails we got over it. You know, we have to appease the people. But I'm sure, I'm sure. But it, we're glad that you're joining us today on this Friday. As a reminder. Everything we've talked about over the last week or today, you can find on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. And you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us and uh, helps other people find the show as well. So we are grateful to those of you who do that. As we said later this hour, we'll be talking to an author, Nancy Piercy. Uh, author of a new book called Love Thy Body. But Ian, uh, I was watching uh, maybe the Today Show this morning, watching the Today Show, and uh, heard something really interesting that maybe you knew or maybe you didn't, but uh, I was surprised by this. Uh, and that was this, that that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, uh, is lying in state today at the Capitol building. And uh, she is both the first woman and the first uh, person of Jewish heritage to ever lie in state at the Capitol. That shocked me. Uh, were you surprised by that? Did you know that stat about uh, that that fact about her today? Well, now I feel bad saying that I did know that. Um, you were you surprised by it? Uh, no, not necessarily. Okay. I, I I'm curious why I found that. What really was the word you used? I don't know why that shocked. Me. You said shocked. I really was. And I don't know which side of it I was more surprised by that. There's I, maybe I'm overestimating how many people have lied in state. But uh, but to be the first woman and the first person of Jewish heritage, I would have assumed that that most politicians did. So let me ask you this question. Unanswerable question. But kind of as we put a bow, we've talked a lot about Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week. Uh, she's only I also heard only the second Supreme Court justice to ever lie in state. Uh, the first one being Thurgood Marshall. Uh, why do you think that she is being given this honor? And another way to ask this is, why do you think, as you listen to the stories, why do you think she's being held in such high esteem, even greater than past Supreme Court justices? I mean, I think I think her record speaks for itself. I mean, we could spend yeah. the rest of the show just listing out the reasons that I, I think that she's being honored and held in that regard. But yeah, I, I think people I think people pretty much know. OK, uh, so. Second story I saw on the Today Show, we're just going to do a little bit of the news uh, this first hour, and then we'll jump into some other stuff as the show goes on. Uh, Saw a a report about this, and I got to be honest, this, uh, I'm using the words like shocked and terrified, but this really scares me. The whole conversation about will there or won't there, depending on the election, be a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, President Trump has been uh, he has been uh, coy, dancing around the subject. He has been hinting at certain things. Um, and, and to me, uh, if there was not a peaceful transfer of power, that is um, that is really scary. And so I'm wondering, as you've seen those stories, give you a chance to reflect upon that, uh, this whole conversation about this transfer of power. I, I mean, I, I'm not as scared by it. 
to be honest, I don't. I mean, I think that he says what he wants to say. I think that on honestly, I, you don't have to like it, but I, I think more often than not, he's being cheeky. He's trying to get a rise, and he does every time. So, I yeah, personally, I don't know that I I don't know that I totally understand. Like when you say stuff like, "Oh, this really scares me. This is really frightening." I'm always like, I, "Really? I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't take it nearly as seriously, maybe as as some others. And maybe, maybe I need to. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. That one feels like a big deal to me. That one does. All right, I'm going to go a different direction here. I'm going to read to you a quote from one of our favorite pastors. Are you ready? One of our show pastors, Scott Saul. I was just reading the book. Uh, Jesus outside the lines, just right before we went on air, I was reading it for something, uh, a group that I'm going to be meeting with. Let me just read you a line. Are you ready? Because every now and then you read a line on a book and you just go, oh, I got to underline that. That one I I need to sit and think on. So you don't even know the line because I didn't even tell you we're going to read this one. But here we go. You ready? Here's what Scott Saul said. And I want you to answer. Do I think that's true? And if we uh, what difference does it make to our current climate? He says. Uh, In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, we should feel, quote, at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. That that was a big line. I had to read that one a couple times. Do you agree with them? And uh, I'd love to know why or why not. And uh, what's he getting at here? Yeah, I've I've heard other authors make very similar claims for the last 15, 20 years. I think I probably believed it a lot more. 10 or 15 years ago than I do now, to be honest. Is that right? Why? Yeah. Uh, I just think it feels like a bit of a straw man, to be honest. Like we, we know that there are, there are vast differences all under the umbrella of Christian or evangelical. And to, to make a claim to me, it, it, and again, I, I tend to agree with, you know, a lot of what Scott Saul says. Um, but to say, I mean, if there was someone in your community, let's say hypothetically, who by their confession was a Bible believing Christ follower, however they defined it. Um, but we're saying some really hateful things about a particular people group or about the rights people should or shouldn't have uh, to say like, well, I'm still, I'm closer to that guy than the person that feels, you know, more similarly to me with regards to human dignity. Um I, yeah, to me, that that could potentially lead to some some dangerous places. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Let me read you one more line. I'm just I'm enjoying this because this book, I've read it before. It's interesting. This book was written way back in 2015. Oh, is that what you were like flipping it, through? I got <laughs> oh, can you hear it right now? Oh, my gosh. Here's what he says. Listen to this line and we'll close with this one. He says, I'd love to know your reactions when he says the question then is not whether Jesus is on our side, but whether we are on his all right, tell me your thoughts on that line from Scott Sauls. I mean, what did he say right before and right after that? I closed the book. <laughs> uh, to, to, he, to me, that's 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 almost not helpful with with no context, you know. Well, let me find the context then. Uh, he said, "Lord, are you for us?" Oh, he's talking about the story out of the book of Joshua, and he says. Uh, This is the appropriate question, not only for politics and government, but also for every other concern. It may surprise us to know that there was political diversity among Jesus's disciples. And he says, the question then is not whether Jesus is on our side, but whether we are on his. So I I think the point being, uh, 
we, we try to mold Jesus often into he beloved, he believes all this that I already believe. And it's the old Anne Lamont line that, uh, uh, I'll know that I've made an idol out of God or I've made God in my own image if he hates all the same people that I hate. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, I, and, I, I, and, I, and I, and I might surprise you on this one. That, that one feels a bit like a straw man too, man. I think people know better now than to say they're like, Oh, God's on my side. I mean, people still say that, but right. uh, I think God on my side or I'm on God's in a lot of people's minds is the exact same thing. And you could flip it around. I think part of what's, I even honestly think what Tony Evans said years ago, he said, uh, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over like the very notion. And maybe this is a segment for a future time. The very notion that Jesus has a side um, might be part of what I take issue with that. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I'm, lo- I'm, I'm re- as I said, I'm rereading the book. I'd encourage people to read uh, Jesus Outside the Lines by Scott Sauls. Like I said, I it is a good book. It. I will say that. Just I like <laughs> him and I like that book. Yeah. <laughs> just, I was just reading, especially in our political climate right now, while that's going on. Uh, it's a, it's a solid book coming up next. I want to talk about an article that Stetzer wrote at Christianity today, specifically about a really unique friendship that has been in the news that I think we can all learn a lot from that's coming up next year on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Welcome back to the common good AM 1160 hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us on this Friday afternoon. It's, uh, much of this week. Uh, we, uh, a lot of things in the news and, uh, we have been discussing the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as she passed away a week ago today. Uh, as we said in the first hour, she is lying in state. Uh, her body is lying in state in the Capitol today, uh, after being in the Supreme court for the last couple of days. Uh, and to understand Ruth Bader, one of the aspects of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, I think is so fascinating. And it's this, and then we're going to look at a Christianity today article, written by Andrew McDonald. Uh, that is one of Ruth B- uh, Bader Ginsburg's best friends, uh, especially on the court over the years, was Antonin Scalia. And now Antonin Scalia, you remember he died a few years ago, but Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could not have been uh, more opposite ideologically on the court. They were regularly on opposite sides, and yet their friendship was uh, people have described it. I watched a show. I was watching CNN, I think, earlier today, and they were describing it as the closest that many people knew two Supreme Court justices to ever be. Hmm. And there's something to be said about that. So that's the backdrop to this article of Christianity Day. Let me read it. Let me get us into it a little bit, and then we'll discuss. Uh, Andrew McDonald at Christianity Day writes this. Uh, He is something of a pagan, and like many other pagans, a very fine man. This was the reflection of G.K. Chesterton on his friend, George Bernard Shaw, as was characteristic of his biting wit. Chesterton simultaneously poked fun at Shaw and those who devalued his friendship with an atheist. Just as in Chesterton's day, these friendships continue to befuddle us. How would that even work? Like a rotary phone, they appear to be a relic of a bygone time. Yet with the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her relationship with the late Justice Anton Scalia provides us with a fresh example of a friendship that transcended our polarization. Revered by liberals, Ginsburg was the ideological opposite of Scalia in nearly every aspect. Despite these differences, the two were, quote, the best of friends dating back to their time on the U.S. Court of Appeals 
for the D.C. district. In recent weeks, the Ginsburg-Scalia friendship has become a central narrative in the celebration of their lives and legacies. In articles, on social media, and in person, people across the political spectrum will praise the friendship as a role model of civic engagement in a liberal uh, democracy. When asked how they were able to maintain a friendship despite profound differences, Ginsburg once answered, We know that even though we have sharp disagreements on what the Constitution means, we have a trust. We revere the Constitution and the court, and we want to make sure that when we leave it, it will be in as good shape, good a shape as it was when we joined the court. This is part of why the friendship of Ginsburg and Scalia rings so powerfully in our ears today. The questions that fill interviews and articles reveal the depth of their own of our own longing. How'd they do it? What happens when they disagreed? What did they really think of each other? These are the questions of a society that understands that such a friendship is virtuous, but is unable even to fathom how to attain it. So that's his his first chunk here. I'm just curious, Ian, I, I find this to be pretty fascinating. Uh, not only what do you think about the story of that friendship, but what can be learned from that friendship? Yeah, I think the takeaway for me is how shocked so many people seem to be that says a friendship can exist like this is a thing that I feel like I really need to tip my hat to my folks because they must have done something to like really ingrain this into us because this is how I, I it seems like into adulthood a lot of my siblings also behave and I can think of there's a guy who was on our elder board at uh, the last church I was pastor of and you know it would get heated we both grew up in like big Irish families and so sometimes we'd we there'd be a little bit of volume a little bit of intensity and then he and i would go you know go grab a beer afterwards and people were always sort of like weren't the two of you just fighting i was like we weren't fighting we were just you know disagreeing loudly like we were there was a there was a passion there and there was always sort of this listen i i know he loves this church and he knows i love this church and more importantly we both know that we love god and we love this community so when that like it's kind of what this article I think is presenting as the bedrock. Like we we don't disagree on that. Now, if I thought this elder like secretly was trying to sabotage or he had this whole you know ulterior motive thing and his whole any disagreement was him trying to like poison the well, that would be totally different. But I didn't doubt any of that. I was like, man, we totally disagree on how to go about this at times. But I have no doubt in my mind your level of love and commitment to Jesus and this community and it freed us up to like really go at it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't talk to everyone like that. Like I knew that there was a safety there that I could, okay, if I apply a little bit of pressure, he'll apply a little bit of pressure and work. That'll be okay. You got to read the room a little bit, but uh, I, yeah, I've been really great. Not only do I think it's like cool to see these types of relationships. I think maybe now more than ever, it's critical to seek them out. We need more people who are willing to have friendships like these because It's kind of like the premise of this show from the very beginning. Otherwise, we're just kind of caught in our echo chambers and confirmation bias. And we we need people from across the aisle to, you know, to help us think differently at times. Uh, I I do agree with that. Uh, I guess it's a two part question for you. A, why do we increasingly not see this right, whether it be political or or whatever it might be. So what makes this difficult? Why do we not see it? And then uh, while I agree with you, I guess I'm, I'd love for you to flesh out why is it so important? Why do you say now more than ever, we need these kinds of relationships? Yeah, I don't think at its core, any of it is like you were asking political or theological. I think those are just symptoms. I think those are, that's kind of the fruit of like our deeper unwillingness or incapacity. I think what's at the core often 
is the ease with which we demonize a, a, an opposing person or viewpoint. Because if I can somehow devalue you in my mind, that makes it easier for me to distance myself from you. And I don't think anyone ever is like articulating like I would like to demonize you now. But I think with an increasingly digital uh, social construct that a lot of us, even before pandemic, were pretty accustomed to. That also does something to our capacity to see like the sacred dignity in, in each person. We can know that, but it's totally different to like live it out at a coffee shop or in a board meeting than it is behind an email or a Facebook post. And I think yeah. because of that, because we seem, and we've talked about this a fair deal, I think a lot of what we're seeing in media, a lot of what's happening in our politics is not accidentally driving us further and further apart. I think it's in a lot of ways part of the strategy. So to counteract some of that, we're, we're not going to passively find ourselves with these like rich diversity of friendships. Like it has to be something, it's going to be some swimming upstream to really, I, I think to like make meaningful connections like that. Yeah. And you touched on a bunch of these, but McDonald uh, near the end says in my own experience, the cultivation of relationships that transcend disagreement begin with extending three specific graces. And I'm you about nailed all three of these. He oh. says empathy, dignity, and forgiveness. Uh, and that as we live these out, and he closes the article this way, he says, saturated with polarization, tribalism, power, and selfishness, we are habituated uh, to believe the lie that the highest good is to win. Mm. Scalia's son recently tweeted a story about how his father would buy roses for Ginsburg for her birthday. Seeing him with the roses, Judge Jeffrey Sutton once asked, so what good have all these roses done for you? Name one five four case of any significance where you got Justice Ginsburg vo Ginsburg's vote. Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. Few knew the power of the Supreme Court more than Scalia, but he recognized that Ginsburg was greater than her vote. For Christians, when we encounter disagreement in our society or in the church, we need to remember that the image bearer is more important than our differences. And so I think that's a that's a great article, something great to learn from them uh, as we continue to remember Justice Ginsburg. That article is up at our Facebook page from Christianity Today. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by author Nancy Piercy. She's the author of the book, Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined all the way from Houston on the phone uh, by Nancy Piercy. Nancy is the author of a book called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It is absolutely our pleasure. Just so our audience gets to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Um, I am um, a professor of apologetics and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. So I get to talk all day long about how we know Christianity is true and how we mm. defend it better in our secular age. So I can't think of a better job in the world. <laughs> that sounds great. So uh, Brian mentioned you have this book called Love Thy Body, which I've mentioned a number of times on the show, how how difficult it is to even find Christians writing like a robust theology of the body. I'd love to just begin our conversation talking about what's the book actually about? Right. In my book, Love Thy Body, my goal is to equip Christians to be able to discuss moral issues with their secular friends or even their family members 
because so often we are known for having a primarily negative message, right? It's wrong. Don't do it. It's a sin. And there's something wrong with you. And mm. so in Love Thy Body, I give people the tools to craft a positive message and to show that the Christian ethic is actually based on a high view of the body. We tend to think that Christians um, say the body's not important. All that matters is the soul. Well, it turns out that if you compare the Christian view with the secular view, Christians have a much higher of a, a view of the value and significance and dignity and meaning of the human body. And that's what we needed to get across to people when we discuss these issues. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. I, I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, growing up, we all, all we ever really talked about was the soul and leaving your body and going to heaven and all those kinds of things. What is the danger when we don't uh, talk about the body, but when you, as you said, when we only talk about the soul, what's the danger for the Christ follower in that? The danger is our message doesn't get through. It's not a fully biblical message. Mm. Let's take one of the uh, issues as an example um, that I discuss in the book. Like the cutting edge issue today is transgenderism. So what does transgenderism say? It says that there's an alienation, a split, a divide between the body and the mind. A BBC documentary put it this way. It says at the heart of the debate over transgenderism is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body at war and in that war it's the mind that wins because what counts is how you feel you know it's your self-identity it's your emotions and the body is not considered part of your authentic self if you you know uh, children down to kindergarten today are being told in their classrooms it doesn't matter if you have girl parts that doesn't make you a girl and it doesn't matter if you have boy parts that doesn't make you a boy so kids down to kindergarten are being estranged from their own body. They're being told that your body doesn't matter. Over against this, the Christian message can only be presented as incredibly positive and life-affirming because it says God made your body. It has dignity and value, and you are meant to live in harmony with your body. You're meant to live in accord with the Creator's design. And that's the language that I'm trying to get Christians to be able to sort of get their mind around how to present the Christian view as, you know, embracing God's high purpose for your body. He made, he made you male or female for a reason. And we want to embrace that and, um, and be grateful for God's good gift of being male or female. So I, we've, we've talked about this a fair number of times on the show in the last year and a half. And I know that, you know, Christians disagree on this and a thousand other issues. I know that J.K. Rowling has recently been in the news a lot because of some of her positions on that very topic. I, I'd, I'd love to know maybe what's some of the opposition that you've received to that perspective and, and how do you sort of answer or navigate some of the uh, the pushback? Well, the good news, I'll, I'll give you the good news first, is <laughs> that even even secular people are starting to see this. Hmm. Um, there was a there was a 14 year old girl who had trans trans um, become a, lived as a trans boy. She lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then recovered her identity as a girl at age 14. And she says the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Hmm. And this was, by the way, this interview came out after my book. So it's not in the book, but it would have been a great interview for a book titled Love Thy Body. So you're starting to see some um, even secular people starting to say that the transgender 
movement rests on body hatred. That's a term you're starting to see now. It rests on body hatred. And so what Christians should be responding is why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? A Christian ethic says we want to live in harmony with our body. We want to live in accord with the creator's design. And so if you put it in those positive terms, you don't get the same kind of negative feedback. You're starting to get more positive feedback because they're getting it. They're getting the fact that you're not just judging them. You're trying to help them to have a higher view of their own body. Yeah. How, how does all the, that you're talking about here and this theology of the body affect, say, uh, something that's always in the news like abortion, say, uh, for abortion? How does this conversation influence and kind of form an answer for that? Yes. Um, abortion also rests, in terms of the secular ethic, abortion rests on a divided view of you know, the, the mind and the body. So most professional bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from science, from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So how do they defend abortion then if life begins at conception? Well, what they'll say is, well, yes, of course, the fetus is human biologically, genetically, chromosomally, <laughs> physiologically, we have to admit the fetus is human. But then they'll say it doesn't become a person until it develops a certain level of cognitive functioning, a certain level of self-awareness. And so it's the, you see how it's that same divide that's basically saying as long as the fetus is still human or merely human, as they would put it, um, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. Hmm. It can be, uh, it's, it's basically just a disposable piece of matter. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's the exact word they use in, in technical articles on the subject. They call it medical waste. Hmm. So just being human, biologically human, is no longer enough for human rights. You have to earn the right to legal protection by becoming a person, which is defined strictly in terms of mental abilities, cognitive functioning, and so on. So once again, this division between your body and your personhood, or your body and your mind, is seen as the deciding factor in secular ethics. And once again, we have to say, look guys, if you wanna have a positive message, what you do is you say, Christianity teaches us an integration of body and personhood, mm -hmm. integration of body and mind. We teach that you are a whole person, that God made, he made your body and he made your soul, he made your mind, and we are intended to live as integrated units. Your body has as much value as your mind does mm -hmm. in the Christian worldview. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is a totally different way of, of expressing it for most Christians, but it gives us the tools to promote a positive message. And I'd love to just give you, uh, with the minute we have left, uh, an opportunity to expand on that a little bit, because I, I know that for a lot of Christians, the notion of a theology of the body at all is a, is a foreign concept. I remember hearing a quote from George McDonald years ago. He says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. And it made this very like, almost dismissive, like, ah, you, you just have a body, it's on long, you don't worry about it because the soul is the thing that really matters. Why, why do you think it's so rare for evangelicals in the West to actually have like a robust theology of the body? Oh, our, our theology was infected by Greek thought. <laughs> and the, the early church faced uh, 
an ancient culture that did see the material realm as being less valuable, in fact, being evil. The material world was the realm of death, decay, and destruction. Plato called the body the prison of the soul, and the goal of salvation was to escape that prison. And unfortunately, um, the early church fathers, just that was, their, that was their cultural environment. And so many of them picked up that uh, negative view of the body. And so that's what we really need to be aware of is that in, in the Old Testament, you don't pick up any of this negative view of the body. So where did it come from? It came from the Greeks. So we need to uh, clear out that Greek influence and recover a robust biblical view of the value and purpose and dignity of the human body. Nancy, this is all really fascinating. We're really thankful that you've joined us. Again, you've been listening to Nancy Piercy, the author of the book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. You can find this book on Amazon, also at nancypiercy.com. That's nancypiercy.com. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us again today. Uh, So at the Gospel Coalition, we quote from the Gospel Coalition often. Uh, There's an article here that I wanted us to jump into written by Jason Thacker. Uh, It's entitled this, The Social Dilemma and the Bigger Dilemma. Why don't you jump us into this article? Let us know what it's about. I mean, I was told, Brian, that there's no list, so I'm not sure that I'm interested in and even reading it, to be honest, it is that's a good point. We can we can say part one. Letting me down. That's fair. Uh, have you seen it yet, by the way? Uh, the social dilemma. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I have not. I actually did not even know that it existed. <laughs> so this is the first I've heard of it. Right, right now, <laughs> I'm really? sure you have seen it. Man, we yeah. you and I have very different Facebooks because I feel like this was the thing it's everyone so was talking true. about. And what? And what? And uh, viewing habits as well. Yeah, yes. Anyway, it's it's worth it. I h- highly recommend it. I said, last Friday night after my wife and I put our boys to sleep, we pulled up the new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, featuring a number of noted authors, scholars, tech leaders, and activists. The film helps explain the growing influence of algorithmic technology, especially in social media. As a quick aside, it was also super interesting because it was like interviews interspersed with uh, like a high production short film. It was like a production that was based to sort of weave Within the interviews, okay. it's a really interesting format. I was I was super intrigued by it. Huh. It's led by Tristan Harris, former design ethicist and president of the Center for Humane Technologies. The Social Dilemma explores how these technologies are specifically designed to serve up a frequently curated and addictive online world where companies profit from tracking our every digital interaction. So that may not come as a surprise to plenty of you. Um, but once you watch it, though, I, my guess is it'll haunt you to probably a new level goes on the, the film right? focuses in part on the artificial intelligence technology behind the tools that drive our social media feeds email platforms and most of our smart devices as harris explains our concerns about ai are often uh, centered on when it will overcome our strengths and outperform us in various tasks rather than focusing on how it has already overcome our point of weakness by fostering addiction and fueling dissent Many of these systems control what you see in your social media feed, when you receive notifications, and even what you type, all in order to modify your behavior, whether in uh, whether in what you buy or what you watch, which, as a quick aside, is why all of my notifications have been off for a, a long time. Uh, 
The article goes on. The film examines how tech giants like Google, Facebook, Twitter, and others are able to bend our will toward company profit by perfectly curating our online experience. This curation, in turn, creates social bubbles that wreak havoc on our mental health and social fabric, amplifying things like anxiety and group polarization. We were just talking about this earlier in the show. Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff, featured prominently in the film, surveys the negative social effects of algorithmic technology in her recent book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. She aptly states that some of the most fundamental ethical questions of this new smart economy are who decides uh, who decides what we are exposed to, who decides who decides these things and to what end such decisions are made. The social dilemma is a needed wake up call to the power and influence of algorithmic technology it's a film Christians should watch and engage simply because these tools are already shaping us profoundly and in many cases forming Christians in decidedly unchristian ways. Mm. But in a bit of a subtle irony, the filmmakers actually rely on these same tools to spread the word about the film <laughs> through social media and even the Netflix recommendation engine. I'll stop there. Does any any of what I just shared with you surprise you or is this sort of like because we've been doing this show, you're like, yeah, I already knew all that. That's right. I would have said before we start doing the show or early in the show, this stuff would have really surprised me. And now we've done enough articles to go, oh, man, that's really how it goes. It still blows my mind, though. Like, it's still like when you mention something and then it shows up on your Facebook feed or you've been searching something on Google and all of a sudden it's it's right there. The next thing you open and it's all very weird to me. Um, yeah. So two questions about this movie, though, or this documentary. One uh what ages would it be good for? Like, would my kids enjoy slash would it be appropriate for them to watch? Because I think this would be helpful for them to start getting their minds around a little bit. Would you show it to kids? Uh, not kids. I got a sixth grader, seventh grader, high schooler. Would you show it to that? I, age? I can't remember uh, if there was language or not. I think certainly your eldest would be OK. I mean, I would probably I would check out, you know, VidAngel or some other Christian resource to get a better, more succinct read on that. I mean, it's it, it will. I mean, it'll it'll spook them to some degree, I think. Um, that's kind of what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm like, I honestly am shocked that you hadn't heard of it till just now. So uh, it sounds much more familiar. Maybe I just was not remembering the name of it. I certainly haven't seen it, uh, but I, I think I'd certainly heard of it here. You also said so you've seen it. Obviously, other people that you said uh, around you have seen it. Uh, you said one of the takeaways for you is that you've turned off all notifications. Oh, no. I, yeah, I was doing that. Like, why? I was doing that well before watching this. Yeah. So I'd love to know why you specifically do that, because there might be a lot of listeners going. I don't I always what's the deal with notifications. So a that and then just be what was your takeaway when you watch this? Was it like I need to get off things? I need to just be careful. What was your overall takeaway uh, for you? I, I don't necessarily know that there are any new takeaways but certainly like solidified yeah. pre-existing ones like if you think about notifications i you know i've always sort of functioned under the adage uh, if anything is free then you're what's being sold so facebook is free <laughs> oh, right i need to think about yeah that. if think oh, about any of these good. things how how in the world could facebook be worth what it's worth i haven't paid facebook a dime someone's getting someone's paying something i must i must be the product and so anytime for me, and again, maybe this is a credit to my parents. Anytime my phone wants me to pay attention to it and I haven't decided to, I don't want that. I don't need that in my life. Mm. There's phone calls, right? Like I need to, you know, that's certainly like so my wife can get a hold of me if there's an emergency. That's understandable. But 
and I've talked about this, you know, some stuff has stuck, some hasn't. I've changed my home screen so that only like my absolute like necessity apps are on the home screen rather than all my games and time wasting ones. Uh, turning okay. your phone to black and white, you know, there's a there's a whole other list of things I could reference, like how the colors on the apps are specifically engineered to like create the most addictive experience. Even like the the new, you know, kind of pull down on your screen to refresh Twitter or Facebook. It's meant to sort of simulate like a slot machine. Like all of that behavior stuff is. It's not just this is this is where I think this documentary does a good job. It's not just, well, I've never bought anything from a Facebook ad, so it doesn't matter. It's so much more integrated than that. Mm. Just because you haven't clicked buy directly from a Facebook page doesn't mean that they're not still shaping your behavior. And behavior is shaped often, you know, through like trauma and big dramatic means. But I think way more often through seemingly minuscule shifts in how our brains and behavior function and little things like notification, reaching for your phone first thing in the morning, all that kind of stuff adds up and it's not accidental. There, there's, there's so much engineering that goes behind creating a very specific experience to your particular brain. And, uh, and I think at the very least Christ- Christians should be thinking about those things maybe more robustly than, than a lot of us have. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to, you're going to hold me to this. I'm going to watch this documentary because I've got kids with phones and kind of all that. And I kind of know this stuff, but it feels like it feels like this would be a good one for me to watch. So yeah, do it. I'll, it might I'll take ask... me as long as when I did. Alexa, but, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. ask you about it on Monday. OK, that's the goal. No promises, but that's the goal. OK. Uh, all right. Well, the first hour is in the book. Coming up next, we are uh, going to talk about a blog that talks about. Uh, the statement that John MacArthur put out, and just politics and the Christian faith coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about John MacArthur. We're going to talk about how to best help somebody in grief. And then we're going to end the show by hearing from Scott Sauls. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Again, glad to have you joining us for this last hour of the week. I guess the last hour of our show will be on the week. Uh, hopefully, you're looking forward to a great weekend. And uh, we're thankful that, that, that you've joined us this week. If you've missed any of our shows, uh, first of all, why? Second of all, you could go back and catch up on the podcast Wherever it is you get your podcast, uh, subscribe, rate, and review. You can go to 1160hope.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, find the stuff we've been talking about there. Uh, okay. At this uh, site called The Front Porch, thefrontporch.org, mm-hmm. uh, a guy by the name of Victor Scholar wrote this, Politics and the Christian Faith, Thoughts on John MacArthur's Statement. So let me read a little bit of this, get us into it. Uh, and then again, oh, I'm, in, talking, I'm into it already <laughs> talking about Christian faith and politics. I feel like that is an evergreen topic, especially as we move towards November here. Yeah. So uh, here he goes. A couple weeks ago, Pastor John MacArthur shared in an interview at Liberty University, his conversation with President Trump. In that conversation, Pastor MacArthur gave reasons why a true believer could not vote Democrat. He said, because there's no way that a Christian could affirm the slaughter of babies, homosexual activity, homosexual marriage, or any kind of gross immorality, 
no way we could stand behind a candidate who is affirming transgender behavior, which, of course, is really the reprobate mind of Romans one. Any real true believer is going to be on your side, Trump, in this election. That was John MacArthur. Uh, The author goes on to say, it is Pastor MacArthur's last statement that has caused a bit of concern as we prepare for the coming election. Is the assurance of one's salvation determined by how one votes? If you vote Democrat, does this mean you are not a real true believer in Jesus Christ? If you vote for President Trump, does this prove you are a true believer in Jesus? How you answer these questions will not only define salvation, but if the church should be known more by its political affiliation than its gospel witness, since now the proof of Christian obedience is tied to one's politics. Now, just in case you think I'm taking President uh, President Pastor MacArthur's statement to an extreme, uh, consider a recent account of a 21-year-old minister in Arlington, Texas, uh, who was denied renewal of his license because he had a sign of a public endorsement of Joe Biden. Is uh, If this is the way we're thinking, we need to be more open and honest about it. It shouldn't be during the election season we discover that the assurance of one's salvation or qualification for ministry is measured by what political party you support. Let's start inserting this into our own doctoral statements and new member class curriculum. And I say this perfectly understanding why Pastor MacArthur believes this is not an issue to agree or to disagree upon. For in his statement, he concludes that the Democratic Party affirms behaviors that reflect the reprobate mind of Romans 1. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, let me skip ahead. He says, if there was one political party in America that fits the description of support for these behaviors uh, of Romans 1, we would have to say it's the Democratic Party. But does that automatically mean that the Republican Party is the party for the Christian? So an opinion piece. So lots of opinion in here. But Ian, uh, we've touched on this, but. MacArthur has said it, Jeffress has said it, Jack Graham has said it, Franklin Graham has said it, uh, that to be a Christian, there is only one way you could possibly vote. And you have, uh, we all know that you and I both do not agree with that statement, but I want to again discuss why is that dangerous? That's what this article is about. And I just love your take again as to why those sort of statements are either reckless or altogether just dangerous. (laughs) I don't I don't even know that I want to say again. I'm like, <laughs> like tired of saying it. To be honest, <laughs> I what new spin would you give to it? I, like, how could we say it in a way that we haven't said it yet? Like, what I appreciate about this blog is he he does say, hey, I I actually understand what he's getting at here with Romans one, and based on my hermeneutic and exegesis, like it does seem like. All right, that does seem to best fit the Democratic Party. However, does that automatically mean that the Republican Party is the party for the Christian? Which I suppose for a lot of people is the billion dollar question. I don't even know if it's the right question. It'll be interesting to see how he how he continues in this article. But the the no the notion uh how do I say this? I understand that people feel very, very strongly about this. And we've, you know, we read that blog by Ron Sider and David French. These are, Mm -hmm. these are conservative evangelical men. I don't know if maybe Ron Sider would necessarily be, but it is interesting how people who are thinking through these things robustly with, I mean, pretty objective, profound theological training or political training uh, for us to even share something like that on our Facebook page. You know, sometimes sometimes the feedback is like, "Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting take." Other other times, it's like, "Oh, so you're fine with the murder of babies?" You're like, "Who mm-hmm. who said that? Why do we why do we have to jump 
17 steps ahead. But I, maybe that's maybe the reason that we do is because that's the only for some people, the only logical trajectory that you know one could even imagine. Um, not to mention that, you know, like eight years under President Obama, you know, abortion in this country went down as best I can tell. Like there's other aspects to this. You know, Sky Jathani caught a bunch of heat for his Twitter thread a couple of days ago. So there's a lot of angst around it in general, which is part of why I think it's dangerous to to in any way marry Jesus with the political party or the church with red or blue. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm that to me makes me skeptical at the very, very least. And I, and I think actually Jesus and Paul and Peter have some specific warnings against that kind of behavior, even though this was obviously before, you know, Democrats or Republicans were a thing. So that's kind of a long winded non-answer. Yeah. I don't know what to add to that. No, it's a good answer. And like you asked at the beginning, do I, what new take? I don't have a new take. I guess what worries me is uh, I'm hearing this sort of sentiment around people online and in person in my circles of Christ followers increasingly as we get as we are marched towards uh, Election Day. Uh, I don't feel like this is a sentiment that is decreasing in my world, at least it feels like it's increasing um, that that how we vote coming up here on November 3rd or whatever the date may be uh, is an indication as to the vitality of our faith and whether we are actually believers or not. Uh, and I just think, uh, I think that's really dangerous. Let me, you, you, you were mentioned that this ends well, let me read the rest of this at the end. It goes for a long time. Romans one, he talks a lot about it. I'd like to read the last part of this. Okay. He says, uh, my reasons for writing this article was not to provide a solution on how one should vote, but to awaken us to a dilemma. When you place your vote for the support of a candidate, you may reason that you're not voting in support of the person's behavior, but his policies. But realize when you cast your vote, it will only be interpreted one way. You support this candidate, period. Right. Yes, no party is perfect, but also no party is Christian. When you vote, you're essentially supporting which pagan you believe will bring some good to society. So voting is a common grace not a promotion of the Christian faith. There's a difference. Mm. Therefore, there is no such thing as a Christian vote, but a Christian who votes. In other words, you vote as one who professes Christ, but your vote itself doesn't represent the kingdom of God. It doesn't advance the gospel of Christ. It merely affirms your earthly citizenship. You are a Christian who votes, just like you are a Christian who plays a sport or a Christian who watches a movie. Your involvement in these activities are not kingdom activities, but Christian liberties we enjoy in this life. The only agenda of God's kingdom that we are commanded to advance is the gospel. And then he's going to keep going. It's a great blog. And some of you, a lot of you might disagree with parts or all of this. Yeah. And that's why we want to bring it up. I have some thoughts this about what you just like read, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'd love to hear those thoughts from some of you out there at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We'll put this up. It's from The Front Porch, an author by the name of Victor Scholar called Politics and the Christian Faith. That is up at our Facebook Facebook page. Well, coming up next, uh, Pastor Ron Smedley, the executive director of Mission Recovery, uh, is going to join us. We're excited for that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. And we are really excited to be joined on the phone by Pastor Ron Smedley. 
Ron is the executive director of Mission Recovery, and we're going to talk to him about Recovery Sunday, which is going on September the 27th. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on The Common Good, and I appreciate the opportunity to share my passion, ultimately to save lives and dealing with addiction in all of its forms and how it negatively impacts families. So uh, we appreciate um, you allowing us on. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And and Ron, could you just talk to us uh, about Recovery Sunday? We see it's coming up on September 27th. But for the people out there who've never heard of it, what is Recovery Sunday? Actually, Recovery Sunday was our vision. We started three years ago as a a brand or a ministry of mission recovery, of which I'm the executive director. I was brought on to be a voice because I've been a pastor for 40 years. I always joke that I started in kindergarten and then I was involved. I saw treatment from a secular view, so they wanted me to take on and give a voice of how important that uh, uh, this ministry is and how churches and pastors can make such a difference because uh, there aren't enough treatment options out there. Uh, People that need it can't get the help, and so churches and pastors can help. And Recovery Sunday is just one day every Sunday, last Sunday in September, where we say to set aside and have a recovery uh, theme. And this year, guys, it's even more important because of all the pain and stress that people are going through due to the pandemic. Yeah. And, and Brian and I are both pastors. So this is something that's really close to both of our hearts because, you know, for decades now, we've been doing like boots on the ground in the trenches ministry. And a lot of times the area of recovery for a pastor and for local churches can be a, a real struggle to know how how do I actually care for people in my community that are facing these battles? How do, how do I actually like lead effectively? And you were saying off air too, that you actually had a story that kind of help is a helpful way of illuminating or illustrating kind of some of the, some of the significance of what you do. Would you mind telling us that story? Yeah, absolutely. We not only have our own common good, we have common ground as pastors. And so uh, guys, uh, mm-hmm. what I've found is 80% of hurting people in crisis come to churches and pastors first. And they're not always uh, comfortable or feeling equipped to deal with it. And so part of our vision is to help pastors to be able to engage and to equip them with our curriculum. But what people don't realize is when they think of addiction, they think of the crackhead and in the ghetto somewhere. But uh, there are probably 35 percent of our congregation that's dealing with uh, some form of addiction. And one of the most powerful stories that it's actually from a friend of mine, and I can use her name. Her name is Deanna. And because she has been healed and set free, she has no shame talking about her story. But she had a high-paying job as a professional, a nurse, and uh, she had a tragic accident of no fault on her own and uh, injured her back. And she went to the doctor like so many of us do and was prescribed a pain medication we call opioids. And opioids are the main ingredient in all the common pain medications that we all deal with. She was subscribed or prescribed two pills a day. And uh, the the problem with opioids is they're very high risk for addiction and also high risk for uh, overdose because they have a, they they numb pain and they give a sense of euphoria and she got hooked and most every addiction, Mm. someone is trying to escape pain and then they get hooked and uh, they're in bondage. And so that's her story. And so what she did is started stealing from her employer. She had access to drugs and uh, she started stealing from her beloved father and uh, because she was so uh, addicted to these drugs. And uh, to, to survive, she began to lie, steal, manipulate, to do whatever it took. And then, of course, the story is it always ends either in death or 
some kind of consequence like incarceration. She ended up in prison. They, she was sent to a secular treatment facility, and as soon as she got out, she got high again. And then in a traffic stop, a police officer pulled her over, and she actually thanked mm. the police officer because he saved her life. And after she bonded out, she connected with the Christ-centered recovery program, and she met Christ there and was discipled there. And Deanna's story is on the Christian Post, the ex-felon is pleading with churches and pastors to get involved in Recovery Sunday. And you know what's what's right. most cool about this story is not only is she a recovering addict, but now she is a counselor helping other addicts get set free at a prison. So we hear hundreds of stories like that every day because people are trying to self-medicate, whether it be abuse, uh, sexual abuse, divorce, some kind of loss. People are trying to numb the pain mm -hmm. and uh, escape and looking for pleasure other than what God can give us. Mm -hmm. And Ron, you, you touched on it earlier, but uh, the problem of addiction and um, kind of escapism and all of this stuff is only uh, exponentially worse due to COVID right now with the coronavirus and all that's going through. Is that true? Are you guys seeing an increase issue right now in the midst of the coronavirus? Absolutely. And 180 precious souls die every day to addiction. In eight years, 700,000 um, 700, souls. And guess what? Since the pandemic, there were some studies, and it's up 49%. Alcohol use is up 28%. Wow. Uh, all substance wow. abuse is up 30%. And you know what's really bad, guys, is treatment is hindered. And this isolation thing is the worst thing that can happen to someone in recovery because they need connection. And, guys, that's where pastors and churches can make such a big difference because we can combat isolation, whether we're live or, or in person. We can give people community and prayer and the message of the pain tanker, of the one who came to preach good news to the hurt and broken and to bind up broken hearts and to set captives free. And all addicts need to be set free because they are hooked to these substances. And we can give them what the world can't give them. That's the transforming um, power of Jesus Christ at a deep level of their being. That's really good. I, I want to kind of shoehorn a couple of questions. I know that's cheating, but one, I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to sort of speak to the person listening right now and they're they're listening to you talk and they're realizing or maybe they they've known for a while man i i'm i'm caught in the jaws of addiction like would you speak some hope to them and then i also want to make sure to give you time how, how does a church or a leader or a community get involved either in your ministry or specifically you know recovery sunday this sunday yes well first of all i would say uh to be honest with you and frank um a person has to want to change uh, if they're willing to turn and change then there is hope in Christ, and you can lean into the one who is close to the broken and who's near to those who are crushed in spirit. He can change your life. He can make all things new, forgive you, heal your shame, and then it's important to get into a community so that people can renew your mind, remind you who you are in Christ, pray away the memories of your past, and begin to renew your thinking according to biblical thinking. And again, that's where the church can make a real, real difference. And on that note, 80% uh, of hurting people come to pastors first, and as I said, they're not normally feeling equipped. And so we're excited to be able to. I've been involved in Life Recovery and Celebrate Recovery, and they are both great programs. I highly endorse them, but we are offering a 52-week free, let me say that, did I say that again, free uh, program. It's called Recovery Strategies for Life. And what I love about our program, guys, is that it helps get down to the roots. It helps get down to the pain. Not only does it deal with all the relevant issues of recovery, but it helps bring um, 
out to light every layer that needs to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you'll go to recoverysunday.com, if you're listening, go to recoverysunday.com. Pastors, or tell your pastor to go to I know it's late in the game for this Sunday, but you can do it at any time. And if you will create an open environment and a shepherd will stand up and say, we hear your cries, people will come. Their family members will come. They're looking for hope. So we hope you'll partner with us. There's videos, uh, 30-minute videos, PDF workbooks that every pastor, the stats would say 30 to 35% of every congregation mm. has someone struggling with some form of addiction. And it's a way to make a difference. And I know it's your guys' heart, too. It's also a way to evangelize the world, and the community will come if they have a place where they can receive answers and hope and prayer. Pastor Ron Smedley, Executive Director of Mission Recovery. Ron, this is such a great uh, thing that you're doing, and we, we'd encourage people to go to recoverysunday.com. That's recoverysunday.com. And as Ron said, all sorts of resources and descriptions there. Ron, uh, we really do appreciate having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, guys, for the opportunity. And uh, we, you're in our prayers, and may God heal our land. Yeah, Absolutely. We appreciate it, too. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Mel Lorenz, who uh, I believe was the pastor at Elmbrook up outside of Milwaukee, uh, he wrote this, and I, I just found this to be uh, just a deep article. It says, at Relevant Magazine, when it comes to grief, answers won't fix everything. He says, mystery is part of life and part of faith. Not mystery as riddle or puzzle, which suggests someone holding us in ignorance for a while or playing games with us. The other meaning of mystery is realities that are so large, so complex, and so high that our limited minds cannot comprehend them. Mystery as in uh, ineffability, truths too great to be described in words. He says this is one of the ironies of writing. We try to make pathways with words, all the while knowing that if we're doing it right, we'll keep coming to that cloudy cliff edge beyond which words cannot go. Uh, he's then going to go on to tell the story uh, of his daughter, Eva, his only daughter, who died unexpectedly at the age of 30. Uh, and he goes on to say, there is birth and there is rebirth and there is final birth into the arms of God. All of it a mystery. I don't mind not understanding how a human being can be formed in the womb by the knitting of God. And I don't mind not comprehending eternity. Eva always told me she kind of freaked out when thinking about eternity. And I affirmed her honesty. <laughs> It showed how smart she really was. It is the wisest people whose breath is taken away by the great mysteries of God. It's okay to feel intimidated by mystery at the same time uh, that it rouses you. He says, lately, I've been thinking about something I frequently hear from people who have lost their child. They say, it's like a part of you dies. I'm finding that is true. But I used to think that referred to the searing pain that this kind of loss or missing that kid you used to talk to and eat supper with. Uh, but it says, though, a part of you has died. For almost 30 years, uh, we'd been together, and then one is gone. And so uh, he's going to go on to talk about what he has found to be comforting in this. All right. So let me uh, jump down here. He says, if we can accept mystery, we can find comfort that is larger than our rational assurances. When we face great loss, we need that. We need to give up the need to fully understand. We need the liberty that comes from accepting mystery. If the only way we feel safe is with what we can comprehend, then we'll never feel as safe as we might. Mystery moors us to realities that exceed our comprehension. Looking to and respecting the mystery of God is not like standing on a cloud, but on bedrock. 
How a 19-year-old could get that is beyond me. Oh, that's something his daughter said. Perhaps a supernatural gift years before hard times set in. See, the book of Job in the Old Testament is hard to read. The story of a man for whom the worst is worse than for anyone I have known, including the loss of all of his children, his health, his reputation. The story confronts us with all the great questions of suffering and loss. We read along in the book looking for the answers to those questions. We chafe at the insulting answers Job's friends offer him. God enters the story at the end and offers to Job not answers, but himself. Is that adequate? Well, we can think of it this way. When we face great loss, the worst of the worst, will answers to our questions make us feel better? They will not. Answers will not fill the void. They do not replace the person. The hole in our life is still there. So God gives Job and us not an answer to pain, but himself. Job clung, clung to God and he survived. We can too. This is adapted from his book, A Chronicle of Grief. Ian, as I was just reading that today, I, I was just in my mind going, there's people out there who kind of need to hear that good news, that word of comfort, uh, probably out there dealing with loss that, that I or we can't comprehend. I wonder what you thought of, of Mel Lorenz's words there, particularly about where in the midst of just depth and deep pain, uh, where there can be comfort even in the midst of that. Well, first, before I forget, it's pretty timely that you chose this article. So John and Jenna Perrine, they've both been on the show separately. Uh, John just launched something called the Burning Word Podcast. You can learn more at Uh, burningwordpodcast.com. They just launched today uh, uh, an episode that they did together, actually, in their final concluding episode or series on Job. So um, if if you want to hear a pastor and a therapist who are also married talk about the experience of Job, a lot of what you're talking about here, actually, in this article, and uh, it's brilliant. It's really, really good. It's it's interesting uh, because I feel like there's been a lot of conversations around grief and sorrow, not necessarily always loss, but certainly that's mm-hmm. part of it. And I th- I think what's true cosmically is also true interpersonally. Like the notion that answers, and I'll admit that's often what I'm praying for. That's my knee jerk. Mm-hmm. It's like, give me some answers to this, but kind of what, what this article is talking about, like answers don't actually fill the void the way that we think that we do. So rather than answers, God gives himself, he gives his presence I think there's a a very real one-to-one challenge for us interpersonally as well, because so often when someone else is suffering, when someone else is facing grief, the temptation for us is like, give them answers or, you know, and that comes from a good place. Like, here's a verse that was meaningful for me or, oh, like I saw this quote, hope it, hope it, you know, lessens the pain, which again, often those motives are great. But I think, and in a pandemic, this is obviously tricky, but one of the things I used to say uh, was that. Um, platitudes can't hold a flame to presence. You know, like we are, we're drawn to sanctimonies and truisms that might actually be a hundred percent true. But sometimes if you've ever been on, you know, on the receiving end, like if you've ever walked through serious grief, my guess is what you found most meaningful was just like the presence of people who weren't trying to like make it go away. You know, one of the other phrases that we've mentioned on the show before is that you don't, you don't move on from grief. You move forward with it. And I think making that distinction is really helpful. And so if if this isn't something just to be cured of, but probably something you're going to carry to varying degrees the rest of your life, how do we actually communicate to each other that we're in it for the long haul with them? You know, and how does God do that? And this idea that wanting answers isn't in and of itself bad, but I think asking the for the deeper thing, meaning 
God's presence, the presence of people. I think I think that's actually just how we're hardwired anyway. Yeah. I, I don't even know that's a theological statement, um, but it is interesting how quickly we forget that and jump to wanting to prescribe some sort of solution, you know. Absolutely. I remember when there was a time earlier in our marriage, my wife and I were going through some loss. And I remember of all the phone calls and stuff that we got, the one that was the most comforting was the person who called and a friend who called someone close to me who called and said, I have no idea what to say right now, but just want you to know I'm praying for you. I love you. I'm here for you. Yeah. Right. And I was like, that's all I needed to hear right now, man. That was it right there. But it's so hard. As you said, silence and presence can be awkward. It can be difficult. We want to provide answers because we generally want to provide comfort. Right. And uh, I I found this to be a, a really helpful article from a pastor going who, who, is dealing with this pain on a daily basis. And so it's going to be up on our Facebook page from Relevant Magazine. Uh, when it comes to grief, answers won't fix everything. Hopefully that's helpful uh, for some specific people out there uh, who need to hear it today. Uh, well, coming up next, we're going to close out the show. We're going to close out the week uh, with uh, one more blog post from our friend Scott Sauls. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having an enjoyable Friday with a good weekend planned ahead of you. Uh, If you're looking for something to do this weekend, I can uh, tell you there's a good podcast to listen to while you're doing yard work or out for a run or whatever else. Yep, that's ours. You can go subscribe, rate, review, Mm -hmm. uh, hear any of the shows you may have missed during the course of the week. Uh, You know, oh, (laughs) you're laughing at me, I can tell. Uh, one of the guys that we call friend of the show, besides Ed Stetzer and others, is Scott Sauls. He's been on the show a few times. Uh, he's a pastor, an author, uh, and we uh, tend to read from his blog, scottsauls.com, uh, because I, I just really resonate with a lot of what Scott has to say. Uh, and so I wanted to end the show with another blog post of his. Uh, love for you to read it for us, or at least parts of it. It's called this, Jesus and Performance Fatigue. Why don't you go ahead and tackle it? Well, it begins with a Fiddle on the Roof reference, so I'm already all in because <laughs> I love Fiddle on the Roof. So it says in the classic play, Fiddle on the Roof, a husband and his wife have two daughters who have both fallen in love. The husband, noticing how happy the daughters are, turns to his wife and asks her, do you love me? She responds. Do I love you? For 25 years, I have washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Do I love him? For 25 years, I have lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? To which the husband nervously mutters, then you love me? Clearly, the wife is missing the essence of love. For love is complete. Love is at, it, uh, is at its most healthy place when the duties of love are driven by the delights of love. See that right there? That's a good pastor line. The duties <laughs> of love are driven by the delights of love. That's good. In some ways, the wife and fiddle on the roof is a parable for all of us. Caught up in the pressures of daily responsibilities, distractions, and the tyranny of the urgent, our most important relationships, the ones that once made us come alive and were the source of our deepest joy, become dull and flat. What used to bring us delight becomes mere duty. What used to stir our affections becomes an annoyance. What used to be our most tangible experience of grace becomes poisoned by grudges. What used to be face-to-face becomes side-to-side at best or back-to-back at worst. When we, when we, the duties of love, I think that might be a typo, right? 
I think so. I yep. think so. When something the duties of love overshadow the delights of love, intimacy and companionship are eclipsed by loneliness. And it's not just human relationships that experience this erosion of joy. It also happens in our relationship with God. I knew he was going there. When we lose our intimacy with God, it's not because God has shifted. In these moments and seasons of distance, we can truly say to him, it's not you, it's me. Consider <laughs> Jesus' dear friend, Martha. So we've talked, did we talk about Mary and Martha earlier this week? Yeah, we might have. Yeah. I can't remember what context. So if you if you want to go back and read it, it's in Luke chapter 10, uh, specifically 38 through 42 is what he references here. He goes on, he says, like the wife in Fiddle on the Roof, Martha is emotionally and relationally impaired by performance fatigue. Working hard and working alone to serve the guests, her frustration and anxiety are palpable. She is, quote, busy with much serving, and for this, she has often been criticized. But I don't think Jesus was criticizing her for being busy. And then I'll just read this because it's got Greek, and I'm a <laughs> nerd for stuff like that. The Greek word Jesus uses for Martha's serving is diakonia, which is used positively every place it shows up in the Bible. When Jesus described himself, declaring that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give life as a ransom for many, he used this word. When the Apostle Paul lays out the qualifications for deacons, a role of help and service in the church, this is the word he uses. When he commends uh, Phoebe as a faithful servant in her local church, he called her a diakonon. So lest we wrongly dismiss Martha for somehow being untrue to Jesus, let's consider her hard work. She's welcoming her guests. After all, she's practicing the gospel virtue of hospitality. Let's also consider the understanding and grace that Jesus extends to her. When he addresses her, Jesus says her name twice, Martha, Martha. The repetition of a person's name in Semitic languages was a term of endearment. Jesus was pleading with her, not scolding her as if it was some sort of, she was some sort of rebel. Martha, Martha is Jesus' gesture of compassion and kindness to Martha and to also us. So I'll stop there. I imagine, Brian, you've probably not only heard a bunch of sermons on this text, you've probably preached it a handful of times That's at this right. point, right? Oh, absolutely. Have you yeah, taken yeah. this perspective? Is that any of this new information? Or is it like, oh, wait a minute, it wasn't a rebuke. I always was taught that like the big takeaway was stop being so busy and just pay more attention. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I've, like a lot of pastors, I've actually preached this passage more than one time. And I remember the first time or two that I preached this, I did preach it as a rebuke that Jesus was mad at her. Like, what mm. are you doing? You know, like right. you're missing the chance. And actually the last time I preached it, it actually shifted more to this of him having compassion on her. Like Martha, you're missing out. Martha, I've got something better for you here mm. and kind of not you're doing anything wrong. I remember it's exact funny you bring that up because I remember looking back at the first time I preached the sermon going, yeah, it kind of gives the impression that Jesus is like, what you're doing is wrong. Uh, and mm. he doesn't say that at all. He's basically saying what you're missing out on is best, you know, like come and, and I've got something better for you uh, in this moment. And so, uh, yeah, I have preached this. Have you preached this passage before? You know, it's honestly been a long, long time. I can't think of the last time I preached it personally. I'm no, I'm mm. sure that I have, but it's it's been a minute for sure. Yeah. And so I, I think this becomes then... His, his overall point, I think, is so well taken. Uh, and the reason I wanted to touch on it is because so many of us uh, often in our own relationships, right? Like that beginning, that fiddler on the roof, um, that, that example of even in marriages, like, come on, I do all these things for you. Of course, I love you. Of course, you know, we're, to, we're, we're happy. I, I do this for you and I do that for you. And why would you even question me? And mm. Uh, I've got that in me to treat treat God that way. Like, come on, God, like I did X, I did Y. Uh, yeah, we're good. Like uh, our relationship's growing. And like you said, 
uh, he, that, that kind of powerful line where he said, um, you know, the, what was it? The, the duties, uh, come out of the delight of love. I think that's, that's such a great thing for marriages, for friendships, but also for our relationship with God. Uh, and, and I do think the longer that, that I've been a, a Christ follower, the harder this becomes, you start to like, it's all about what I do for God. It's all about what I do. And, and that's tiring. So you think people actually think that way? I, for me, it's, it's less about people actually, uh, articulating, oh, it's what, it's what I do. It's what I do. I feel like we have enough of a, and this is like in church culture, I'm saying enough of a, a grace intellect. Like we understand in a cerebral mm-hmm. sense, it's not about what I do, but what about he's done? You know, people like make banners and bumper stickers out of that. That's right. For me, or I think the disconnect is, is we, we know these things as mantras, but they haven't necessarily like permeated our, our soul. 100%. Like our, like we know better than to say it's all about works. I don't find that people are actually saying that. I think that people are actually saying the right things, but then you actually look at your own life your own inability to rest, to be still, you know, like mm-hmm. what you can't rest from, you're a slave to. Like that is, that's enslaving you. It doesn't have to be work. Workaholism is the easy, you know, sort of scapegoat, but it could be anything. And intimacy with Jesus has to precede ministry for Jesus. And I think we often kind of get that backwards. Yeah. I think you're 100% right that rarely would any of us get up and preach, say, and be like, oh, it's all about what you can do for him. You know, it's right. all about performance. We know better. Uh, right. But what we say or what we've read or what we think, uh, what we can articulate becomes very different from how we actually live day to day. And and that's the disconnect that can become very tiring as well. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Uh, we put this up at our Facebook page. This is our old friend, Scott Sauls from his blog. Uh, give it a read. In fact, he ends. This is also the word from God for us. Let's end the week this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. And Scott says, let's go find rest at his feet then, shall we? Mm. Uh, just a great invitation. So go give this blog. It's a lot longer than what we gave it. Uh, go give it a read on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, the weekend is upon us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that you've got big plans coming up. And uh, we are glad that you've joined us. Glad that you joined us today or at all during the week. Uh, If you missed any of the shows, any of the interviews, go find it at our podcast, uh, wherever it is you get your podcast. Well, have a great weekend. We'll be back with you on Monday from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.